KBS. I am the world. Hotel Mars, episode N. I'm John Batster, my colleague and co-host and co-pilot, David Livingston, Dr. Space himself of the Space Show. And we're very pleased to welcome the Senior Scientist for Astrobiology Strategy at NASA, David Grinspoon, the author of several books. The one that I am particularly keen on is Early Days, when he wrote about all the planets and their possibilities for astrobiology. And that is still a wonderful treat. Right now, however, we're going to turn to the magic of the skies. It is a moment to celebrate. All these comets which is in history, burned in history of the last 2,000 years, from associated with the Bible, with the rising of the Jews against the Romans in the first century A.D., all the way to the appearance in 1910, when it was feared that the tail of Holly's Comet would spread poison gas on the earth and we're all going to die. Holly's Comet is coming back. It's reached its aphelion outside Neptune, three billion miles, I believe, roughly, give or take 100,000. And it's headed back to Earth. Every 76 years or so it comes, and it comes with history. So we welcome David Grinspoon to comment on Holly's Comet because Holly's Comet was one of the ways early science, Holly himself, managed to calculate in order to justify or at least back up their early understanding of the universe and of location on Earth. It was extremely important because it's a moving object. It's not a fixed planet. David Grinspoon, Dr. Grinspoon, a very good evening to you. Do you have a photograph up of Holly's Comet at NASA anywhere in the corridor? Is it celebrated? Good evening to you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful, famous comet, famous for a lot of reasons, as you indicated John, and of course, um, it's one of, the, well, it was the first comet uh, visited close up by spacecraft from, from Earth um, during its its uh, last apparition, and uh, as you indicated, it's it's famous in terms of the history of astronomy, of confirming the, the Newtonian um, universe of gravitational laws and helping to confirm the, the, uh, the gravitational structure of the solar system. And, and also the fact that it's a periodic comet, meaning that it reappears on a, on a uh, known schedule, and that its, it's, um, its period of reappearance happens to be about the same as the life expectancy of a human being, I think also increases its, its lore, that 76-year period. Um, you know, most people will get one, maybe if you're lucky, two apparitions of Halley's Comet, but nobody, nobody gets three. Um, I, uh, I personally went out to see it uh, in 1986 uh, in the desert with my grad school friends, but that, of course, was not a very good, not a very close apparition. It was hard to see. But my grandmother, who was 10 years old in 1910, drew me a picture once of what she remembered. And of course that appearance, it was huge filling up a big part of the sky. And, uh, you know, so you have to also get a little bit lucky. I hear that the next appearance in, um, whatever year it is, 21 something, um, it, it is, uh, is not going to be that great, <laughs> but the one seventy six years 
after that, so tell your tell your grandkids or great grandkids uh, to <laughs> to watch out because that one's going to be a really good one. But this this sort of human timescale of the reappearance, along with you know the just great beauty of a comet in the night sky and the role that's played in our continuing discovery of of the solar system we live in, I think is is what makes uh, Halley so uh, such a celebrated comet. Uh, Dr. Space, a very good evening to you. You have a question for Dr. Grinspoon. What makes it so reliable in, a, in its periodic return? What, what, what is there about that orbit that is it, it just takes good time? Well, uh, the thing is, anything in orbit, if it's not perturbed in some way, will have a pretty regular um, period. I mean, just as the Earth, you know, doesn't vary from its one-year orbit and, uh, you know, Jupiter doesn't vary from its uh, approximately 10-year orbit, uh, that's just far enough out from the sun so that its average distance is what determines that 76-year orbit. Now, comets have sometimes, uh, they'll deviate a little bit because they have these non-gravitational forces, we call them, because they're evaporating, and that creates these little rocket jets, and so comets can change their orbits slightly because of that, but generally, that regularity is just a result of uh, the way that gravity works and the way that orbiting bodies behave. It's just that, you know, it happens that there are some comets that that have much longer orbits, you know, many hundreds of years, and so we don't know their names as well because they don't make that kind of regular appearance so many times in history. There's some that have much shorter orbits. There's some that, you know, don't last so long because they evaporate enough so that they break up and and get destroyed. But a comet during its main part of its lifetime, like, like any orbiting object, will just have that kind of regular appearance. And Halley just happens to have that 76 year lifetime because of the kind of orbit that it's on at a certain distance from the sun. Some of the best asteroid showers, like the Geminids, are associated with comets that have broken up, and they return period, periodically, uh, reliably, because there are comets. Now, comets are associated with the death of kings, the birth of kings, with war and catastrophe. Not bad. We have all of them going on right now if a comet appeared. We're going to go, however, to maybe a comet that appeared some time recently called a Muamua, and that caused a great deal of debate in David's world, Dr. Grinspoon's world, because it's interstellar. David, uh, Dr. Grinspoon, I say comet, it might also be an asteroid. There's some debate about it, and that's important, but what is a Muamua? Why did it surprise us? Where did it go? The startling thing about a Muamua is that it was the first interstellar object discovered. That is an object that clearly is coming from beyond our solar system. It's not in orbit around the sun. It was passing through our solar system. And we know that because the velocity at which it was observed to be passing by the sun and then on outward is greater than uh, the limiting velocity to be within our solar system. In other words, it's moving so fast that we know the sun's gravity can't hold it and that it has to be uh, traveling from, from somewhere else in the galaxy. Now, the thing about this is that, in a way, it's startling because we haven't found anything like that before. But in another sense, it's not that startling because we expected there to be objects like this. In fact, 
a lot of us were kind of wondering where they were. It was a little bit bothersome that we hadn't found any yet for the following reason. We know or we believe we know, we understand that in the formation of our own solar system that a lot of material got ejected. They're uh, in the process of forming planets and uh, sort of settling down into planetary orbits. We believe that a lot of material gets tossed out of the solar system as part of the formation of the planets. If that's the case, and if that's true for other solar systems, which we think it is, then there should be a population of objects out there that have been tossed out of their home solar system. As in once in a while, one of them should pass through our solar system. So it, it was actually before the discovery of Oumuamua, it was an occasional topic of conversation among astronomers. Where are the interstellar objects? Why haven't we discovered any? And if we never discovered any, there's something wrong with our models of how the solar system got made. So in a strange way, it was comforting to find it because, because we knew they should be there. In another way, it was startling because the properties of this particular object were really kind of strange, not exactly like any other comet or asteroid that we've observed before. Uh, Dr. Space? Um, is the speed at which it was traveling the main reason you know it's interstellar? Yes, that's what gives it away. There's no way that something moving that fast can be in orbit around the sun. The sun, we know, just can't be holding on to it. David and Dr. Space and I have had the privilege of talking to Avi Loeb, who's a highly entertaining uh, genius at Harvard University with his book about interstellar and his speculation about its conduct as it approached the sun, so-called changing course. There are many reasons to uh, smile and pursue this, but I want to go in another direction, presuming it's not uh, artificial, presuming it is an asteroid or a comet. It had an unusual shape, unusual, not unprecedented, unusual shape, something like a flat cigar, moving very quickly. And there's this speculation about being a comet. Is that a profound difference, whether it's an asteroid or comet? Well, it's not that profound because what we've learned is that it's, there's a continuum between the two. Comets are icy objects with a little bit of dirt and rock and organic stuff mixed into them that are evaporating as they travel around the sun and as they get close to the sun they evaporate a lot and form this the, these beautiful tails asteroids are ice are, are, are rocky objects but some asteroids have a lot of ice mixed into them and we've learned that some asteroids are actually extinct comets that is there's an evolution where a comet if it goes around the sun enough times and loses enough of its ice can become an asteroid so there can be transitional objects in between so it's not necessarily a profound difference and yet, of course, when we see an object like a Muamua, one of the questions is, is it a comet? Is it an asteroid? Is it something in between? And the properties of a Muamua are very strange. They don't, it doesn't exactly fit our picture of what a comet or asteroid should be like. Then again, we've never observed any other object that has been traveling for presumably hundreds of thousands or millions or many millions of years through interstellar space, and we don't know what that environment, that long, long passage through interstellar space does to an object. So it may be that it's not that surprising that it looks different from objects that we've seen in our own solar system. We're speaking with the senior scientist for astrobiology strategy at NASA, David Grinspoon, Dr. Space. David Livingston is with me. This is Hotel Mars. When we come back, what about the next time? 
This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Bachelor. CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Bachelor with my good colleagues, David Grinspoon, who is now the senior scientist for astrobiology strategy. I'm old enough to remember David when he was an astrobiologist out west, and I was introduced to the topic. Now he's the top of the pile, and it's great fun to talk to him about Amuamua. David Livingston is here with me, Dr. Space, my colleague and co-pilot. David Grinspoon, I turn to you about the next time. Oumuamua surprised. It dashed through the solar system on its mission to we don't know where. But if there's one, it's like mice in a country house. There's never one mice. So are we getting ready for the next time? What do we need to do, David? You're absolutely right. One of the really cool implications of the discovery of Oumuamua is that uh, it implies a population of interstellar objects. Uh, there's no reason to suspect there's only one. In fact, if there was only one, what are the chances that we would have that it would have passed through our solar system and we would have observed it? So it implies a larger population. In fact, we've already observed one other interstellar comet since then, a comet called called Borisov. So now it's just a question of how many of these objects are there. What is their population? What is their velocity distribution? How often will they travel through the solar system? And as you imply, how can we be ready for the next one? So um, certainly we are now undertaking many searches um, using a lot of the equipment that we already have for searching objects within our own solar system, but uh, adjusting some of those searches to look for higher velocity objects um, to make sure that we can find objects like this. As well, there's the Vera Rubin Observatory is coming online and will be surveying the sky very intensely and should be able to detect many such, such objects that we now believe are out there. So what can we do if we detect another one? I mean, right now, of course, even just with the equipment we have, we can be more ready to immediately start observing these things and try to catch one on its way in. We didn't really detect Oumuamua until it was turning around the sun and already heading on its way out at very high velocity. So we try to catch one earlier. And then in the longer run, there's an idea to send a spacecraft to try to rendezvous with one of these things. Now, it's challenging, of course, because as we've been discussing, there are very fast. They're, you detect them when they're already coming in really fast, and then they're going to round the sun and be heading out really fast. So you don't have a lot of time to prepare for one of these. But the idea that's been floated is that you prepare in advance before you actually detect the object. You statistically know sometime in the next few years, 10 years, whatever, we, we, we're going to find one on the right kind of trajectory. So you, the idea is what if you have a spacecraft ready to launch on detection, or even you have one parked in space somewhere, say in Earth orbit, ready to go if you see one of these things coming. Now, NASA doesn't have anything like that now, and we don't have any concrete plan to do something like that, but you can, you better believe we're studying ideas like that and looking at proposals, and I would be, uh, I would not be at all surprised if this kind of a mission is not something that gets advanced and goes through the process of, uh, you know, the, the many steps 
that a, pro, a proposal for a mission has to go through to actually be supported by NASA. But, it, you know, it seems like a very promising idea that would certainly be, be taken seriously. Because if you could go rendezvous with one of these things, imagine being able to make close-up, sustained observations of an object from another solar system. I mean, that would just be tremendous. Yes, it's almost as good as going there. Dr. Space, you have a question. How um, do you get the propulsion going for a craft launched from Earth to rendezvous? So it has to be going faster than the fast-moving object to overtake it. So is this done through propulsion, through gravity boosting? And if it's gravity boosting... What's your lead time to try to intercept it? Well, it's a great question. And, and you know, obviously there's not a particular uh, – this, this is still very much in the conceptual – I wouldn't even describe it as in the design stage. It's in the concept stage now. And people are looking at just that question you just posed, David, of what's the best way to think about accelerating this thing. And, and, and one uh, promising – consideration is the lead time because you don't want to have to try to overtake this thing uh, while it's already screaming away from the sun. So if you see it on its way coming in towards the sun and you start, you can predict its trajectory in advance and you start heading away from the sun as it's heading towards the sun on a path where you'll be able to intercept it on its way out, then that helps you. And yeah, we can look at things like solar electric propulsion, nuclear propulsion, gravity assists from Jupiter or other planets. These are the kinds of considerations that, uh, that will have to come into play in order to be able to do this. And, and at this point, uh, it's really we're at the brainstorming stage of people just kind of coming up with ideas, writing papers, proposing methods for how to do this. But, you know, it's such a good idea that uh, it seems to me the kind of thing that, you know, that I don't have a crystal ball, uh, but I, I would predict that this is a, a, a mission concept that will float to the top of all, all of our ideas because it just seems so obviously beneficial to be able to accomplish this. Uh, Dr. Grinspoon, we only have a minute left, and I have to return it to astrobiology. The, the theory of pansperma, that would be accelerated by finding uh, Muamua 2, wouldn't it? The idea of spreading at least the basis of life through solar system after solar system. We have about a minute. Well, it's tantalizing, isn't it, to think that uh, not only might life naturally spread between the planets in one solar system, as has been proposed by, uh, by uh, meteorites through our own solar si system when the planets were young, but could you somehow have organisms that could survive that interstellar passage? And, you know, people have tried to model that. Would the radiation kill all the organisms? Maybe not if they're ensconced inside of the rocks. It's it's a it's a exciting possibility. And, um, you know, I, I love the idea that the galaxy may be exchanging life between the planets. Whether or not it's feasible is something that, you know, I think we just have to keep studying. The senior scientist for astrobiology strategy at, the Na at NASA and Dr. Space himself of the Space Show. This is Hotel Mars, Episode N, waiting for the next Amoa Moa. I'm John Batchelor.